Welcome to Writers Tete with Elizabeth Harris, the show that connects authors, songwriters and poets with their global audience. So I can continue to bring you high caliber guests, so I invite you to go to iTunes, click subscribe, leave a review and share this podcast with your friends. I'm delighted to introduce today's guest, Rosalie Hamm. Rosalie was born and raised in Geraldry, New South Wales, Australia. Prior to Rosalie's life as a best-selling author, she worked in a variety of jobs, including a stint in aged care. Rosalie completed a Bachelor of Education majoring in Drama and Literature in 1989 and completed her Master of Arts Creative Writing in 2007. In 2000, Rosalie published her first novel, The Dressmaker, now a major box office hit. The Dressmaker opened at the number one spot at the Australian and New Zealand box offices and became the second highest grossing Australian film of 2015 and 11th highest grossing film of all time at the Australian box office. The costumes from this poignant film have featured in several stunning costume exhibitions. Rosalie is jetting off to New York soon for a special screening of The Dressmaker before its release on September 23rd. Rosalie's second novel, Summer at Mount Hope, was published in 2005. And in 2011, we were privileged to receive yet another great novel, There Should Be More Dancing, which we will feature today. Rosalie Hand, welcome to Writer's Tete-a-Tete with Elizabeth Harris. Thank you, Elizabeth. Rosalie, we both worked in aged care before launching our writing careers. Can you tell me a little about how serving others has impacted you? Enormously. Um, Looking after elderly people was probably one of the best things I've ever done. And I think possibly because of all the information, um, all the learning, all the experience, all the history. And because of their outlook on life at that stage in their life. Um, And they seem to be quite... Um, a lot of them seem to be quite resigned to the life they've led and others are quite happy about the life they've led and others are quite bitter about mm. the life they should have led, I suppose. Um, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. I've learnt a huge amount. I enjoy enormously old people and, of course, it, it makes you see what's important and what's not. Just as a great perspective, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and learning too from their wisdom, whether they've actually enjoyed their life or whether they have not quite enjoyed their, their life well. Um, and there's, you know, we learned about war and why, why the men were like they were, some of the men, and mm. we learned about some of the lives of the women, most particularly. Um, a lot of women got married, uh, you know, that I was looking after because that's what they, was expected of them, mm-hmm. and a lot of women were actually quite disappointed in mm. the whole thing. Well, that sense of duty too that comes yeah. with it, doesn't it? Yes. And then, of course, you see the the old elderly ladies coming and sitting at their husband's bedsta- bedside, the de- devoted, mm. true love matches yeah, that lovely. have endured 60 years. And it's very sad when one of them has to be um, looked after by other people and it's sad for their wife. So they come in sometimes twice a day. Yeah. It's just very, um, very real. For sure, mm. for sure. When did you know you wanted to be a writer? Do you know, I've, I've always known it, but it was only um, hindsight that told me that I had always known it. Um, I wrote stories as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, I put on plays wow. with all my imaginary friends yes. and my best friend Terry and I put on acting performances at, uh, at, at primary school. So there's always been a sense of story and drama mm-hmm. Um, and there's always been a sense that there's a there's an audience for those things, 
But of course, if you're born and raised in the in the way I was, they want you to get a good job and be able to support yourself. And you know, that, happily, I was given the alternative. Not like if I was unfortunate enough not to get married and be supported. <laughs> um, my parents always wanted me to job, and so I trained to have a job, and I put any writing aspirations to the side. But I always wrote letters and I always kept a bit of a journal and occasionally I would write a short story and I knew that I um, could could spin yarn because people would say to me can you I want write me a letter I like getting your letters and then one day I just got bored with life and it, it seemed that I'd done everything I was supposed to do, but there wasn't there was something a bit not there there was something missing so I went off to writing school and I think I was sitting in that writing class for about three weeks before I went actually uh, it's something but there was a some sort of physical emotional sensation that came across me and I went aha this is this is where I, I remember the classroom and I remember looking around and thinking I can do this this is where I feel good it was a great moment yeah it was excellent can you advise all the aspiring writers out there how to get started and more importantly how to keep going? Uh, it's tenacity um, and I, I kind of believe that everybody could be a writer if they wanted to mm -hmm. but you've got to have the inclination and you've got to want to sit in a room on your own for a very very long time mm. and you've got to be quite comfortable doing that uh, and then perhaps being rejected. Mm -hmm. um, and I just think you need to be bored enough as well. Like <laughs> there needs to be something not in your life that yeah. you can find happiness in doing that, in doing that menial task, just sitting in that room on your own with that computer and being able to do all those characters. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, like a huge amount of writers will drop out of a, a writing course partnering into it, they discover it's not for them. Mm -hmm. So I think that if you're still sitting in that room after a year and you're still walking around thinking about your story, then you have the temperament, mm -hmm. of, you know, to sit down and be able to do it. You've got to have a degree of talent um, and you've got to have a degree of tenacity to be able to do it. And mm -hmm. you've just got to stick at it. Um, my personal philosophy is that you just get it all down onto the page and then once you've got all the words, then you have something to craft. Mm. That's it's, they talk own. about writing junk, don't they? Write junk and then eventually you fine-tune that. You do, and that's, that's a skill too. I think that's a really important part of writing is that you can go back and recognise what the junk is and mm. you're quite happy to chop it out. Yeah. Uh, and you feel quite confident that you'll be able to write more and write again and keep writing, that there's something in you that will keep doing that. So if you have to cut out 10 pages, mm. it's not a problem. It's almost like that sense of non-attachment too, because if you get too attached to what you've written down and you don't let it go, you, know, you need to have that the mm. free-flowing feeling about things. But you've got to write it. You, you, you write, I agree with you completely, because you've got to be writing um, so that other people will read it. Mm. I mean, I've, I... Other authors say they don't write for an audience, but I, I write something that is well crafted that it will, or I try to anyway, uh, and other readers might disagree with me, but I do try to write something that's well crafted so it will keep the reader in, engaged. So I do have a reader 
in mind when I'm writing and so therefore I'm quite happy to edit and get rid of things I learned that early on. With my first edit actually um, I learned that you have to let things go and I was quite happy to do it. Great. And, and I know certainly when I read your work I, I giggle right through. Do you do that too? <laughs> yeah, you know, sometimes I, when I was preparing to do this interview, a couple of weeks ago I picked up There Should Be More Dancing and read a couple of pages uh, and thought, gosh, that's quite, that's okay, you know. Absolutely. Right you know, so <laughs> it's, it's always lovely. And I was watching an interview with Edna O'Brien on the television last mm -hmm. night and the interviewer read something of hers to her and she had to ask him which book it was from. Oh, okay. And he said, oh, it was The Country Girls. And, oh. she, and I, I felt quite happy about that because... Honestly, I've forgotten a lot of what I've um, written. Mm -hmm. Okay. When you are writing, what is your major source of support? Or who? No one. I just, I suppose you, I'd have to say my husband. Um, he knows, he knows not to, uh, I think you can tell by the tone and the way my shoulders are. You know, I, sometimes he'll ask me a question and then he kind of backs off. Because, you know, I'm in the middle of doing something. I'd speak a lot to the dog that's lying there on the... Eric's over there, having a bit of a sleep. And I've got a few, I've got a really good friend, my friend Terry, that, um, and I talk whinge to her about it. And mm -hmm. she, she doesn't really listen to what I'm saying. Okay. But... Um, but but at least I can air my thoughts and there's a couple of other writers that I um, have dinner with um, from time to time and we we all have a little bit of a whinge and so I think those things but there's not one huge great thing and I guess it's just my my desire to get to the end of it too that mm. keeps me tripping over sitting in there typing that tenacity comes back into it again absolutely yeah fantastic. You've had phenomenal success with the dressmaker. What does being successful mean to you? Do you know, people ask me that, and it um, it actually hasn't altered my life at all, really. Mm -hmm. I've, I've got a nice car and I've paid off a mortgage, uh, which is with a huge relief. It's a blessing mm -hmm. to have that off there. But what I think what it means now is that when I do publish my... Or when I when when publishing houses get hold of the fourth manuscript that I've just finished, they will look at it in a different way, given mm. the success of the dressmaker. And along with that, that that has meant that people have also started reading Summer at Mount Hope, and mm -hmm. there should be more dancing. So they are reaching a wider audience, and I cannot tell you how happy I am about that. And of course, it means that I was I've been published in other countries as well. Um, and all of that is amazing. It's amazing to have that kind of affirmation. Mm -hmm. um, and people pick up your book and kind of look at it differently because there's been one successful book, so they have a certain expectation about the others. And so there are some people that will go into my other books um, with trepidation and pos mm. uh, possibly a little bit of cynicism, but there are others that will go with a lovely attitude. Mm. So I'm... Really, really happy about that. But I think most importantly, it's an affirmation for me. Mm. It's a double-edged thing. I'm, I feel quite affirmed by that success, but also slightly more terrified because there is that expectation. Mm. Does it, does it, in one way, create a sense of pressure for you? Absolutely, yeah. it does. But I, I that's all right. I can, 
it's, it comes back to, I don't know, boredom or tenacity or something, but I just seem to be able to being, be okay with that. Um, and I'll just try really hard not to read the reviews. I think that's probably <laughs> the best thing. Just don't read reviews because they will be, they will scrutinise more, mm. you know, the reviews. So I've just have to deal with that. Have they upset you in the past? Have you ever reviewed? Look, the very first review I ever read of the dressmaker, I think, was the worst review I've ever read of any book ever. Okay. It was scathing. It was awful. Um, and I photocopied it. And I was at RMIT at the time, and a friend was with me, and we photocopied it. And we took it to class. Mm. And the, we read it out to the class. And they all just would... I can still see them. They were looking at me as if to say, oh, my God. And the teacher, blessing, said, um, right, okay this is a good lesson to us all. What we're going to do now is we're going to do some therapy with Rosalie. And he said, I want everybody to close their books. We're going to the pub. <laughs> so we went to the pub. and But I, I have now, of course, blown that review up. And it's on my wall right, in there. Right. Of, um, and what I do with that review is often... Because the, the dressmaker's on the VCE lit list and often they study. And one of the questions they are asked when they're doing their sacks is, um, uh, you know, other people's opinions of the book as opposed to theirs. So I happily have photocopied thousands of copies of that and I hand it out to the school children of Victoria uh, to show them how one reviewer's point of view can differ definitely mm. to theirs and how you don't take literally mm. or to heart every review mm. and how that can be damaging. And so there's a whole lot of school children out there who now know that that particular reviewer got it terribly, terribly wrong and missed the point. Mm. She missed the point entirely of the whole book. And um, thank you very much because it's certainly increased determination all over well, possibly Victoria, Australia, or the world. Absolutely. The people that yes. you know, may be feeling a bit bruised. Mm. That's great. In There Should Be More Dancing, I was particularly drawn to your main character, Marjorie Blandon. I especially love this quote. Marjorie Blandon has led an upright, principled life, guarded by the wisdom of desktop calendars. As the novel progresses, the reader discovers there are many secrets contained in supposed principled life. Now, there Should Be More Dancing is such a great book and showcases your wit beautifully. Can you please share one of your favourite passages from There Should Be More Dancing with us? I think, possibly, it would have to be the public scalping incident mm -hmm. with um, Pat across the road. Yes. I think that's probably the, the one I enjoyed writing the most. But actually Marjorie is my favourite person on the planet because she's yes. one of all those people in the aged care facility. She's a little bit bigoted and a little bit prejudiced. Um, and so... Yes, I have looked after many Marjories in my time, in my nursing career. Yeah. <laughs> um, Alright, well look, I'm going to just read a this... Incident. It's called the public scalping incident, and it's quite long. Okay. So I might just um, start off. 
It happened at the 1976 Ladies' Legacy Luncheon. Pat and Bill were big in Legacy, and for the Ladies' Luncheon, Pat was allowed to take a guest since it was her turn to give the address. As she was rehearsing her address one last time, articulating and emphasising her words to her assembled ballroom dancing frocks, the phone rang. She was disappointed to hear her guest, Betty, said her car had broken down. I know it's a long way, Pat, but we could go halves in the price of a taxi. So, of course, Pat doesn't want to go halves in the price of a taxi, and she's forced to ask Marjorie to be her guest um, at the Legacy Luncheon, where she's to give her address. Um, because Marjorie's got a car. That's right. And so Marjorie ends up on the top table. Um, <laughs> and I'll, t I'll just read that bit there. So Marjorie found herself at the top table, the legacy ladies, the legacy leaders table, a dignitary to her right and Pat on her left. Before her, a sea of soft brown and blue curls, ample-bosomed ladies, floral and pastel, with fleshy earlobes, wattles and dewlaps, all maintained by step-ins and various prosthetics. Before her, propped against the saucer of geranium petals surrounding a floating chrysanthemum, was a white card advertising the day's proceedings. First on the program was the local choir, who sang God Save the Queen. The assembled ladies then sat through number two, welcome woman, and number three, the main meal will be served, chicken or ham salad, fire, Followed by number four, the choir singing, morning has broken, <laughs> while the ladies enjoyed a fruit compote with custard. For number five, a lass from St Joseph's School read a composition titled The Effects of War on Those Left Behind. Her story was based on the life of her great-grandmother, who had grown her own vegetables and milked her cow and ploughed her own fields during the war to help the land army. And then it was Pat's turn. The MCC... The MC said, I give you Pat Crookshank and this month's address title, The Unseen Effects of War on Women. Pat bared her teeth to Marjorie and said, Any fruit seeds stuck to my dentures? No, said Marjorie. And Pat turned to stand up. At that moment, Marjorie noticed the tag poking out of the back of Pat's cardigan. Hang on, she said, and reached up to tuck it in when the catch of a wristwatch caught one of Pat's curls as she rose. Marjorie had no idea Pat wore a wig, no idea her hair had snapped off and fallen out after years and years of peroxide and perming fluid. And so Pat stood frozen before the room her fellow legatees, her rival addressees, past and future, the thin tufts of her bristle hair flattened against <laughs> her shiny, damp pate, and her wig dangling from Marjorie's wish watch. <laughs> Finally, someone started clapping. Pat had turned a deep red and the audience, moved by her brave humility, started to applaud thunderously. <laughs> this is weird. <laughs> it's classical. Absolutely delightful. How can we better that? <laughs> Thanks. What are you working on at the moment, Rosalie? I've just handed in my fourth novel. I think that's the third or fourth time I've mentioned that in the last 15 minutes, but I'm so pleased. We want you to mention it again. Yes, again. <laughs> I, I, it's, uh, the fourth manuscript is, um, it's again I've returned to a small community because the small community is quite, uh, it's a good palette for um, 
life tragedies and it doesn't really matter if it's in a rural community or an urban community mm. or in your street or your football mm. club or whatever but it's small communities um, it's all group dynamics isn't it it is absolutely and mm. so this one said in a small country town and it has to do with irrigation water okay. and the effects of government buybacks and water allocations mm -hmm. on this one small community and one man whose name is Mitchell Bishop and he has a 12 kilometre stretch of channel that needs to be replaced. But there are three areas in the town that are affected. There are the riparians who live along the river and there are the town folk the, the, and the shopkeepers and of course there are the irrigators and the impacts that um, the, the water renewal project and water restrictions and irrigation allocations has on that community. Which would be huge because, you know, being in life force, water. Absolutely, so yeah. And it, it, and so if you cut the allocation to the irrigators, they mm. have to produce more with less water mm. um, and they have to spend more money to get less water to support the upgrade mm. uh, and therefore they don't spend money in the town. Mm. Um, and so when one litre of water leaves the community, so does one job more or less. Mm -hmm. But in order to stay afloat, you need the water and mm -hmm. you all need to work together. And of course the town people are resentful that their water rates are going to go up to support the irrigators and mm. the riparians are resentful because the river's going to suffer because they're going to take more water. Yet at the same time, the world needs food. We have to feed people and there are more people and they need more food. So it's a sort of distillation of that in a small community. Mm -hmm. And all the dynamics that go with that. Well, well yeah. Out the address very, very cleverly by you. Oh, well, there's actually, there, well, there is love and there is um, a bit of tragedy and, you know, there's a few things that, that go on to keep it ticking for, over. Yeah, looking yeah. for tourism. If you had decided not to write your novels, what career path do you think you would have taken? Do you know, I often think about this and I think that I probably would um, be a teacher. Mm -hmm. I still am a teacher, I still teach two days a week, um, but I think that I probably would be working full-time as a teacher, possibly in the secondary college sometime. You know, years ago I, tr I, I went for an interview to be uh, a state registered nurse, so, mm -hmm. you know, a nursing sister, mm -hmm. um, but I just never did it. I, mm -hmm. I, I, I was having far too much fun, so I only trained to be a state enrolled nurse which was just the one year course. Yes. And I think that was the key to my writing success because if I'd been a state registered nurse, I think I probably would have been quite content with that and I would have had a perfectly lovely life um, well, ironically, around that. I am a state registered nurse, mm. but I have continued on to write. So maybe not because you've got that enormous, maybe not. You've got that enormous talent that we really couldn't do without. Possibly. I. It's, it's hard to speculate, but I, I, yeah, perhaps you're right. What is it about teaching that you love? Do you know, I think it's probably um, communication, mm. communicating ideas. And for me, it's seeing the light bulb go on. Mm. If, you, if you're explaining something, and I teach literature, so if you're explaining Shakespeare or you're reading Shakespeare or poetry or something and you stop and you look at those people and go okay now this is what is happening and explain what it is that's going on they go oh you get them to find all those things 
Um, and if you're in, I think if you're enthusiastic enough, it, it infects the students and they kind of get carried away with the whole thing. So you just, it's communicating the information and then seeing them go, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah. And you've been a fabulous teacher and, and very, very entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> what do you like to do in your spare time to unwind? I read. I read books. I, just, I had to think for a minute, gosh, what do I do? I read books and I play golf. Yeah. Yeah, I like to play golf. Go for a lovely long walk. And I enjoy going um, for a drive to the country and um, going home to the farm, doing something quite different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you got a special place you like to go other than the farm? No, it's just the farm, the yeah. family farm. Mm -hmm. And there's something about um, standing on a farm and being able to see the, the horizon with no obstructions and nothing... Um, to sort of block your imagination and stop your vision at this point. There's nothing, so your vision goes on, and mm. as it goes on, things fall away, and you understand what's important. Uh, one of my favourite things to do is um, sit in the ute with my brother as he goes about his sheep work, mm -hmm. um, and my job is to open the gate. That's something I've been doing since I was could open a gate. And just watch him go about doing his business and ask him dumb questions <laughs> about farming things. And it just puts everything back into perspective for me. And time is slower in the country. Yeah, it's wonderful. Isn't yeah, it? it's good. What does your brother think of your success? Oh, they're thrilled to bits. They, you know, they're all very good because um, it's in a small community. They, they love it if someone's out there kicking goals. Mm -hmm. You know, they really think it's a terrific and wonderful thing. And I'm very, they just very well. And, Lovely. you know, it's yeah. it's been really, it's been really good. And the Ham family um, up at Geraldry seem to be coping with it all quite well. Of course, a lot of them were in um, the film and they, uh, as extras, and they come down if I have a book launch you know, they'll come down for a special trip. They'll make that effort to come down, right. which I appreciate enormously. To and, go you, and you're in the film too. Yeah, no, I'm an extra as well. Yeah. Well, I've seen you with the film. How was it for you? How did you feel when you were doing all of that great um, acting? Great yeah. acting. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know, I think I'll probably... Um, I think I'm more content in the company of Marjorie... Blandon and her lovely son Walter in there should be more dancing. I think my days of being an extra have come and gone. It was fun, um, but and I enjoyed it. But but really, you know, when I've just when I finished that fourth manuscript the other day and handed it in, I just it was such a heartwarming thing because I that the whole thing about your characters and creating the arc and mm. all that sort of stuff and me doing it rather than participating in somebody else's it's probably some sort of vanity or narcissism but I actually prefer that I actually prefer to be doing my own thing in my own room and creating my own little story um, and rather than visiting revisiting them when they're out in the world I'd rather be mm -hmm. doing it and the, the characterizations in this should be more dancing they're so rich yeah no I loved I loved writing that book and I loved all those people and I loved that Judith sort of came good in the end. And, yes. You know, I've had a huge amount of fun writing that book. I enjoyed it, I must say. Thank you very much for that book. It was fantastic. Um, but I, now that I've handed in the fourth manuscript, I'll probably go back and 
write a few more things on different topics. Mm -hmm. And that will have to do with, uh, see, um, Summer at Mount Hope's being published in the United Kingdom now. Um, right. And I'm hoping that someone will pick up There Should Be More Dancing. They tell me that it's not a story that will trans well, translate well in other countries, but I'm just really hoping it does. I really it, disagree, but then that's me. But yeah, it's no, a fantastic book. I disagree too, but um, we'll just see what happens with mm. this little, my third one, my third child. <laughs> Rosalie, this is a signature question I ask all my guests. What do you wish for? for the world and most importantly for yourself? It's basically the same thing, it's health. Uh, for the world, of course, you know, I just I just think, I hope we get our act together over climate change. Mm. I hope we get our act together over um, lesser advantaged countries and poverty and educating women Mm -hmm. in uh, disadvantaged countries so because if the women rise the village will rise with them mm -hmm. you sure. always hope for those sorts of things um, I don't think we're ever going to stop any kind of war, I just think that's human nature tragically mm -hmm. and, but basically for my health I just would like for me and everybody else around me to be healthy and happy, that's all that's, all that's important really one thing you can't buy is Rosalie Han, thank you so much for guesting on Writer's Tip Chat with Elizabeth Harris. We look forward to more of your work and your fantastic characterisations. I totally agree with you and Florence. There should be more dancing. There should. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you enjoyed this episode and want more high-caliber guests, subscribe to Writer's Tip Chat with Elizabeth Harris on iTunes, and may all your wishes come true. Thank you. <laughs>